Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. How many of us can think of a group who we were taught, for whatever reason, we were taught to hate them, fear them, avoid them? Is there a group that comes to mind for you when I ask that question? Mm-hmm. Let me flip it a little bit. How many of us can think of a group who we're, we're pretty sure that for, for some reason or another, they were taught to avoid or to hate or to fear you? Yeah. Yeah, and I bet you could, I bet you could share some examples uh, of those if I asked. But isn't it interesting? There's people out there who they fear or hate or avoid you because of one thing that they think is true about you. Like they don't know the whole you, but they, they believe that there's this one thing that's true about you and that's, they've reduced you to that one thing. And, and the thing is, it's like nobody is one thing. Like every single person is more complex than that, right? Well, I recently watched a TED talk by an author named Chimamanda Adichie who talked about the danger of what she calls the single story. And uh, she said, the single story creates stereotypes and the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. And man, I just think that's so true. And that's, that is fundamental to our understanding of today's Holy Ghost story. Uh, you know, a, a couple of centuries ago, the church in Canada and the government of Canada believed a single story about indigenous people. And that single story was that they are helpless, hopeless savages. And you've probably already heard or, or read things uh, to that effect that have been said by either Sir Johnny MacDonald or Duncan Campbell Scott or Edgar Ryerson or others as they defended residential schools. Well, now we know about the sickness rampant in those residential schools and the malnutrition and the child labor and the abuse and the unmarked graves. And it was only, and, and, and it was okay though in those days. It was okay because most or a lot of Canadians only saw natives as one thing. They saw them as savages. And so, like, if you're a, a priest or a nun or a politician at the height of Canada's colonial expansion, what do you owe a savage? You know, especially a savage who lives way out in the West and is almost blocking the way of Canada's expansion. What do you owe such a, such a person? Nothing. You can tell yourself you owe them nothing. And if you're a first century Jew under Roman occupation in your, what you believe is your promised land, <clears throat> and you're occupied by, by Rome, what do you believe you owe a Roman Gentile? Nothing. Nothing. And that's why today's Holy Ghost story is so important. Now today we're, we're continuing our, our set of studies called Holy Ghost Stories. Each week we're hearing uh, stories where the Holy Spirit is the main character and we're learning to see what he did there in order to discern when he's doing something similar in our day. Now, last week we began with Pentecost and we saw that when the Holy Spirit shows up, we have a choice. Do we want to be on the inside or do we want to be on the outside? 
And, and today's Holy Ghost story is a turning point for the church. Because before this, there was this, there was like one traditional biblical way uh, for God's people to relate to Gentiles. And in this story, the, sport, the Spirit forced us to change our minds. Now, here's where we're going. Uh, we're going to begin by just making sure we know who we're talking about. Then we're going to talk about what went down. Then we're going to talk about what uh, what changed, how it, what changed here in the story, and then uh, we're going to ask for some some clues or some breadcrumbs, like how can we know if the spirit is doing something today? Before we end with just a few questions to take home. So first part is who who are we dealing with? Who are we dealing with? Let's first of all understand something about Peter uh, and his people. Now now Peter is a small town Jewish fisherman. He only ever ate kosher foods, no no crab, no no shrimp or bacon or turtle soup, no bacon wrapped sausages. Can you imagine? Whew. And and the reason is because eating those things makes you unclean before God. And and so Peter Peter was taught in the same way to avoid Gentiles, not even to go into a Gentile's home, because they are dangerous in the same way, and they can make you unclean. They worship a lot of gods. They've got really relaxed moral standards. The Roman Gentiles even worship Caesar as a son of God. And so it's like no way would God reach outside of Israel and call Gentiles to follow Jesus. There's no way, because Gentiles are the worst. And, and that's the story that God's people had believed about Gentiles for a long, long time. But let's also understand something about Cornelius. Cornelius is a centurion, which means that he's a military captain and he's in charge of a hundred soldiers. Okay, real important guy, real VIP. For him to have a household now at Caesarea, for him to be at that point in his career means he's probably retired at the end of a long, uh, illustrious military career. Probably seen a lot of battles, probably received a lot of awards and tributes and and, and what's unique about Cornelius, though, is he doesn't fit the stereotype. Like Cornelius prays and he gives money. He wants uh, he wants to know the one true God. He's described in the text as with his whole family as being devout and God-fearing. So he is a God-fearing Gentile. Just so you know, for a lot of people, that is impossible. Like that's a contradiction in terms. And, and just, so you, just so we're clear, Cornelius has a lot to lose in this story too because Jews have a story that they tell themselves about Gentiles, but Gentiles have a story about Jews as well. The Gentiles believe that Jews are backwards and primitive and they've got all these like kooky, strict rules and, and divisions and splinter groups that, and nobody can keep it all straight. And now these Jews claim that one of their own, this Jesus of Nazareth, is Lord of heaven and earth, and if Cornelius joins him, them, like if he, you know, hitches his wagon to this group, his reputation is gone. And that's where our Holy Ghost story begins. Now, let's talk about what happened. Let's talk about what, what went down. This story happens in four parts. The first is that Cornelius has a vision. So I, I love that God takes the initiative in this story. He sends an angel who appears to Cornelius and says, uh, yo, Cornelius, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Like God is paying attention. So now send men to Joppa 
to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. So go get Peter, send for him, have him come back to your home. And then in this, then in the story, Peter has a vision. So Cornelius' men are on their way to Joppa and Peter, uh, is, it's about lunchtime, he's pretty hungry, he has a vision. And there is this picnic blanket full of all the animals that he's never been allowed to eat, okay? And, and the spirit says to him, Peter, bon appetit. I want you to get up and, and, and kill and eat. It, it's all yours to eat. And Peter's like, of course, I can never do that. I could never, I've always eaten kosher food. And, and God says to him, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now that happens three times. Three times, okay? The blanket comes down, Peter's objection, God's correction. The second time, the blanket comes down, Peter sees it. And he's like, whoa, this is, this is amazing. Then he objects and then God corrects him. And then the blanket comes down a third time in, his, in Peter's vision. And there's Peter's objection and here's God's correction. Okay, it happens three times. It, it, it's interesting. Peter's the guy who denies Jesus three times on the night that he was arrested. Afterwards, he's forgiven and sort of restored by Jesus three times. And now he's going to have this vision, the same vision. He has it three times. And Peter's got to know that means something. Like this, this is about, like this is about more than just food, right? Surely this is about more than just food. Okay, so, so after Peter's vision... Then there is the meeting between Peter and Cornelius, and it's, it's pretty epic. Peter arrives to his house, and he goes in, and they have some conversation, and then Peter starts to explain the way of Jesus and, and what he has seen. And I love that in his sermon here, Peter takes the posture of a learner. Like, he's not taking the posture of an expert and somebody who has everything figured out, as though this was so obvious all along. No. In verse 28, Peter says, you yourselves know it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I shouldn't call anyone impure or unclean. Like, that's that's how I used to think, but now God has shown me something different. Do you see that? And then verse 34, Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what's right. Like, I didn't used to realize this. I used to think that this was untrue, but now I realize it is true that God doesn't show favoritism. Wow. that's it. So Peter's learning, right? And then he wraps up this section by saying that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Cornelius and his household and his family members, they hear this and they believe like this really clicks for them. And, and, and so they're immediately baptized, they have uh, received the Holy Spirit, and, and they speak in tongues just like the disciples did in Pentecost in, in chapter 2. Here's, here's, um, here's Cornelius and his Gentile family, and they're having sort of a second Pentecost, and it's pretty amazing. Well, as, as it happens, word travels, okay? And, and some of the disciples, they're kind of critical about it at first, but then Peter tells the story again. And in the end, they can see the fruit, they can see the results, they can see the change in Cornelius and his household, and they all agree with Peter that, like, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Like, I used to think that, but who was I to think that? And in chapter 11, verse 18, they had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
So that's what happens. They end this story celebrating and praising God. And we need to, we need to ask, like, what's changed here? Like, what has the Spirit accomplished in the story of Peter and Cornelius? Well, one uh, U.S. pastor explains it this way. His name is Greg Lowry. He says, this wasn't about food as much as it was about people. And God was saying, Peter, time to leave your comfort zone and reach a whole new group of people, the Gentiles. Peter obeyed God and left his comfort zone, and it changed church history. In other words, what Lowry is saying is that what changed here is that God made it okay and safe for you to step outside your comfort zone. Like before, Gentiles weren't our problem. Like before, they were scary and kind of dangerous, but now God is with us, and now there's good reason to believe that God might even save some people from among the Gentile people. So go ahead, tell them about Jesus. Go ahead and step outside your comfort zone. Well, there's another pastor in the U.S. His name is Keith Giles, and he takes a very different approach to this passage. He says, God has shown us that we should never call any person unholy or unclean. That means no one is rejected. No one is excluded. Not gay people, not transgender people, not Muslims, not atheists, not Democrats, not pro-choice, not Black Lives Matter not Marxists, not anyone, anywhere, at any time, for any reason. How many more times will we need to hear this or have it explained to us before we really, really embrace this fundamental truth of the gospel? And it just seems to me neither of these really gets at the message of this story. Okay? Now, on, on one hand, there, it's like there's this kind of a, a, a religious... A, almost a self-righteousness that says, if I share my faith, like if I'm brave, if I muster up the courage and I step across a cultural barrier, then I have done my job. And and, and that's because uh, I think a lot of us have the world divided up into two groups. There's, there's safe people with acceptable sins, and there are dangerous people with unacceptable sins. And the story we tell ourselves is, Gentiles, or whoever the people group is that we were taught to hate and fear and avoid, like they're the worst. They're the worst. Like, sure, we sin. Sure, I make mistakes, but I'm not as bad as them. It's like, thanks for the vision, God, but you, you've already made it very clear that I'm your favorite, so no take backs. And I'm like, well, that's not okay. On the other hand, there is this an, almost an irreligious kind of progressive attitude that says that we are all forgiven whether we like it or not and and you don't need to repent then give me a break we're all God's favorite God has to accept you no matter how you live and I would just want to say like that's not right either in fact the gospel the gospel says something very different this story corrects both of of those wrong views because the gospel says that all of us all of us are equally sinful all of us are equally blind and broken okay and separated from god and the gospel also says that we are all more than that one simple story because the gospel says we are also every one of us loved and invited and welcome and valued and important and God invites every one of us to turn our lives over to Jesus and anybody who does whether Jew or Gentile or Muslim 
or Buddhist or Christian or atheist or agnostic or 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 other who 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 turns their life over to Christ, joins his kingdom, and his kingdom has no borders. No borders. And, 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 and so when Peter says in verse 28 that God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean, he isn't saying there's no such thing as sinners anymore. He isn't saying that we don't make any more moral judgments. He means that it's not our job to guard the door to the kingdom anymore, if it ever was. Like, it's not our job to judge who can and can't turn to God. He, he means we are all, every one of us, we are more than the one story we've told ourselves about each other. And what God is doing is greater than these man-made barriers and man-made stories. In fact, we are free. The gospel makes us free to love and to associate with, with anybody to the glory of God. Anybody. Jew, Gentile, or any people group. Isn't that, isn't that just great news? Like, I just think that is such a relief. That is such a relief to me. And so I, I actually really agree with John Piper, a U.S. theologian and pastor, who says that Peter learned from his vision that God rules no one out of his favor on the basis of race or ethnic origin or mere cultural distinctives, or physical distinctives. Peter's point here is that there is not one human being on the face of the earth that we should think about in that way. Not one. I totally agree with Piper here. Now, the assumption beneath these Holy Ghost stories is that the Spirit isn't done. That what he was doing in those days, he's doing in ours. And the challenge, I think, is knowing when it's really him, you know? Like, it's actually, it's, it's easy when we can read the story in the Bible, and it explicitly says that this is what the Spirit does, but, but we don't have that advantage now. But what if we could? Like, what if we could discern it for ourselves when the Holy Spirit is active and he's doing a new thing? Well, in our story, I think that there are some signs uh, there, there are sort of some indicators, okay? So think of, think of these as signs. I'm going to offer what I think are some, some signs or indicators or, or breadcrumbs to help us know uh, that the Holy Spirit is at work, okay? So here's some signs that the Holy Spirit is at work. Uh, one sign is going to be personal repentance. Like one of the ways I can know that it's, it's really the Spirit is when it begins with my own personal repentance. And... and I, I just think that's a really important starting point. You know, like we're, we're not going to, we, we can't be sure it's him until we're sure we've given ourselves to him. Amen? Now, Paul the Apostle, he said in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he, he says, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, like, when when will we be able to discern that this is what God wants for the world? Well, when we aren't being conformed to the pattern of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's when we'll know. When we, are, when we have offered our bodies as a living sacrifice, when we have 
offer all of ourselves to God, that's when we'll know. And not before. Okay, and so, so before I ever try to judge or discern what God is doing with some other sinner, or what, before I ever try to figure out and, and you know, pin down what God is doing in some other group of sinners, I want to be sure that I am repenting of my own sin first. I want to make sure that that's my starting point. That's, that's got to come first. And so uh, personal repentance is, is gotta, has got to be the first sign uh, of the Spirit's work. Like that's got to be the first way we're going to know that the Spirit is doing something. But then, you know, just right from the story, the next thing I think we can, we can hope for or expect is, is that he's going to give some visions. He's going to give some visions. This, there's, there's visions all over this story, right? And, and they might not make sense at the time. And they, didn't, they don't always make sense on their own. But Peter and Cornelius both have different visions, multiple visions. And, and in our, our day, I think if a person claims to have had a vision, uh, maybe that's, it's going to be like a strong, a strong uh, impression or a dream or something, um, that might be the Holy Spirit. But if multiple people are having the same vision or, or, or various visions that, that come to the same, lead to the same conclusion, I think we should pay attention to that, okay? I think we should pay attention to visions. I also think that another way we can know is because the Spirit points to Jesus. Because, like, that's his job. And, and so remember that in this story, nobody knew for sure what the visions meant until Peter explained uh, the gospel. Like once he finally explains what Jesus said and, and did, that's when it clicks for Cornelius and his household. And that's when there's this baptism and the pouring out of the Spirit and the second Pentecost and on and on. And, and I think in our day, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of messages going around, okay? A lot of different motives, a lot of different goals and, and aims to what church people are up to. You know, an example that comes immediately to mind is just conversations about how the church has failed. And I really believe that there's a place for that. But I would say this. I would say that if the Spirit is in it, if He is behind it, He's, not, he, he's actually going to point us past the church, past our, our history, and past our failures, because we hope in Jesus Christ. We don't hope in Christians. We don't put our hope in the examples of other Christians. We put, don't put our hope in the church. We put our hope in Christ. And that's how we're going to know when the Spirit is doing something, is he's going to point us to Jesus. And another way that I think we can know he's in it is because he can be puzzling. Okay? He can be puzzling. I think there's going to be times when sincere, faithful Christians and sincere, faithful churches will not agree and will feel confused because it's going to seem like God is contradicting his word. Okay? It's going to seem like God is contradicting himself. In this story... After the Spirit gave him the vision, we read in, in uh, chapter 10, verse 17, that Peter was, quote, wondering about the meaning of the vision. Uh, another, better, maybe a better translation from another version says that Peter was greatly puzzled. Another says that he was deeply perplexed about his vision. He's really wrestling and struggling to figure out what to do with what he's just been shown by God. Now, I can totally appreciate 
that that would be really hard for Peter. And it would be hard for us. And, and in our day, when we suspect that the Spirit of God might be doing a new thing, that is going to set off all the heresy alarms for some people. Okay? And they're going to wonder about the slippery slope. And we're going to have to be the ones who calmly say, I know that it seems unbiblical, and that's, that's the problem. Like, I know. And on the other side, there's going to be people who are like, well, duh, what took you so long? Like, this is so obvious. What's the matter with you? And we're going to have to be the people who calmly say, well, not so fast here, because God doesn't lie. God doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. And, and so we're going to be in tension. We're going to, be, we're going to feel uh, you know, some, con- some confusion. And that might last for a while until the Spirit sends. The fifth thing I think he's gonna, we're going to see is he's going to send a person. A person or people. Isn't it just the way of the Spirit to send somebody to put flesh on the idea? You know, I think that's what we can expect. And that certainly happens in this story. That we're going to meet a person or people who challenge our stereotypes. Like, isn't that, that's just, that's just how the spirit seems to work. He puts flesh on his word and it might be a good Samaritan. It might be a woman at a well. It might be a Gentile woman with a sick daughter who Jesus heals. It might be a centurion whose servant is healed by Jesus as a lesson in faith. And, and here we, in, in Acts 10, it's Cornelius. It's Cornelius. And you know, in, in our day, when it's the spirit we're going to meet people who shouldn't be able to be Christians. Okay? They shouldn't be able to be Christians, but they are. And, and, and that'll be what solves the puzzle. They'll have all the fruit. They'll have all the orthodoxy and all the orthopathy and all the orthopraxy. And it's going to be we who need to adapt. It's going to be we who need to make space at the table. Okay? And, and you know, when... I think the last thing is when, when the Spirit is at work, uh, one of the ways that we can know that it's Him is because it's going to turn out that really he, He's confirming a promise. He's confirming a promise. Like it may take time, but I think we're going to realize that this new thing isn't really new after all. Like, like a Gentile Pentecost, that was, a, that was a big deal, but it's not technically a new idea. Like God had promised it a long time ago, actually. And, and like, just, you know, just so we know, like, listen to this from the prophet Isaiah, who said this centuries, okay, hundreds of years before Jesus, before the cross, before Peter, before Pentecost, the, uh, the uh, prophet Isaiah says, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. These, talking about foreigners, Gentiles, I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Man, it's like, yeah, like this is what he meant after all. He said it a long, long time ago. And and if we forgot, that's our problem. You know, if we if we if we get bent out of shape uh in our day because God gives faith and repentance to people who we consider impure and unclean or hateful or fearful or or to be avoided if that's if we really are upset because God is giving those sorts of people faith and repentance that's not God's problem that's our problem to sort out okay
Because that's, that's God doing what he promised to do a long time ago. Now, we have covered a lot of ground this morning. I just want to wrap up by offering uh, a few questions for us to take home, okay? A few questions to take home. The first question is this. How many Gentile friends do I have? How many Gentile friends do I have? Not, not me. How many Gentile friends do you have? I'm asking this as you. In other words, if I, if I really believe that we're all equally lost, equally you know, broken and blind, separated from God, if, we're, if I really believe that we're equally in need of God's forgiveness and that God doesn't show favoritism in terms of who he grants repentance and forgiveness to, and if I really believe that I'm not to call anybody impure or unclean, is that reflected in who I hang out with? Is it? I encourage you to think about this week. Another question is, if the Spirit's at work in someone that I see as impure or unclean, would I, uh, in, to quote chapter 11, verse 17, would I stand in God's way? Like, like, let's say hypothetically, it seems the spirit is at work in somebody who, to me, is impure or unclean, unsavable. Am I going to stand in God's way? Am I going to tell him he can't? Am I going to say that it's not legit? It's not truly the spirit doing that? Like, why, why would I do it? Why would I do that? Is it, is it jealousy? Do I, do I think that maybe if God loves that person, then he won't love me as much? Or is it because maybe like if God can save someone who's done all the bad things that that person's done, then maybe I wonder like what was the what was the point of all my good behavior? And and so I would just want you to know like God's love isn't a zero sum game, okay? Like He has enough love for everyone. So so why would you stand in God's way? Third question I'd encourage you to take home is if the Spirit sends me to a Cornelius. Or if the Spirit sends me to a Peter, will I, quote, uh, go without raising any objection? It's a quote from chapter 10, verse 29. If the Spirit sends me to somebody, whether a Cornelius or a Peter, would I go without raising any objection? You know, one of the interesting things and important things about this story is that Cornelius had faith. Okay? He believed in God, but he still needed Peter to explain it and connect the dots for him. Peter... He was an apostle, for goodness sake, but he still needed Cornelius in order to unlearn his own prejudices. Both, they needed each other. And, and, and that's why the Spirit sent them to, to one another. And I would just ask this way, like if the Spirit sends you, can, can you just trust that he knows what he's doing? Can you trust him? I just think like that's... That's what makes this story such a turning point. It's, it's this freedom of trusting the Spirit. It is such freedom. Because you know what? You and I, we are now free to pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus. We're free to do that. We, because that's what Jesus asks of his disciples. And, and you know what? You don't need me making your cross any heavier by telling you that you are too impure and too unclean. Because you know that already. And I don't need that from you either, frankly. Because I've got, I hear that in my mind all the time. And you know what else? Our spirit doesn't... And you know what else? Our city doesn't need that from us either. Okay? You and I 
are free from the role of judge, free from the role of gatekeeper. We are free to believe more than one story uh, about each other. And we're free from, from fear and hate. We're f- and we're free to love uh, those who were taught to fear and to hate us. Now, can you imagine living in that uh, freedom? Can you imagine freedom from fear and hate and freedom to love and forgive? Man, if, if, we, if we trust that the Spirit knows what He's doing, I, I, just, I think we can. We can. And, and that's what's changed here. That's, what's, that's what the Spirit did in this story of, of Peter and Cornelius. And you know what? That's what He's still doing. He is still tearing down walls. And, and, and that makes this a really important Holy Ghost story. Let me close with this final thought from Chimamanda Adichie. She says, uh, stories matter. Stories have been used to dispossess and to malign. But stories can also be used to empower and to humanize. Stories can break the dignity of a people, but stories can also repair that broken dignity. When we reject the single story, when we realize that there is never a single story about any place or people, we regain a kind of paradise. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.